0: father i uh, just <laughs> come to you this morning with high hopes that we would that we would come to know you better through the things that we do when we meet as a congregation that the worship the the service the message the scriptures that you would somehow use all of that to do a work in our heart and and put faith in there Put strength in there, a right spirit, whatever it is, Father, so that we can know you more. We want to love you more than we do now. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. We're in a series on prayer. And next week we're going to talk about a lot of the practical kind of nuts and bolts of prayer. So that made me feel like today I was freed up to just go crazy big picture with it because that's when I'm happiest. And so we're just going to take kind of the bird's eye view, and I'm going to start with this question here. I'm going to tell the story of David and Goliath again, because none of you know it. I mean, we all know it. Uh, We hear about it everywhere. But here's the story, and then I want to ask a question. The story, if you remember, is just this. The Israelites are lined up for battle, and God has said he's with them. God has said he's given them victory. He's made these promises. You just need to, to move forward, and I will be with you. Yet they get up against this other army, and what happens is, in a strange turn of events, the other army sends out a champion, and that guy starts taunting, and basically what he's saying is, let's make this a representative warfare. Instead of us all just killing each other, you pick a champion, I'll fight him. If I lose, all my guys will be your servants, and if and if you lose, all your guys will be our servants, and, and that way we, you know, the winning team doesn't just get a bunch of dead corpses to bury, they get all these like slaves. It's called representative warfare. And so if you saw the movie Troy, remember like at the beginning, like Achilles is sleeping in late and they go out and that's kind of what happened. He had to fight the giant on the other side and then that was like the end of it. And so that's what's going on here. And the guy on the other side is this guy Goliath and he's a giant of a man. And and he comes out and he taunts the Israelites and basically questions their God, questions them and is saying, who's going to come out and fight me? Somebody's got to come out and fight me. And the crazy thing is is these are all fighting men that are lined up. Been fighting many of them since they were boys. They're they're veterans. The king is Saul and the reason Saul got picked to be king if you remember was he was the biggest of all the Israelites. It's like head and shoulders above everybody else. He's their giant. He's their representative. He's their champion. And Saul's got no plans on going out there. He's just waiting for somebody else to come up. And so you've got all these fighting men, and they're doing nothing. And this goes on day after day for like 40 days. Goliath will come out there, and he'll taunt them. Nothing happens, and and that's the end of the next day. And then the next day, the same thing. So David shows up, and it says in the text, 1 Samuel 17, that he's a boy. He's not even a man. He's a boy and he comes up and wonders what's going on and and they say well this is what's going on this is the situation and david gets just crazy indignant and david's going to take matters into his own hands and so david goes and he says i'm going to fight this guy cuz this this is this this has, something has to be done here this is just can't go on. And he says, I'm going to fight the guy. And they said, but you're just a boy. And he says, well, I've killed a lion. I've killed a bear. And that guy will be just like the lion and the bear. I don't care. And so Saul's like, I don't have any other offers today. So I guess I'll I'll trust this boy. Uh, here, put my armor on. And so David tries the armor on. And it's kind of like the picture in my mind is the, the, the little kid that knocks at your door on, at Halloween and he's dressed up like a football player. He's got his like older brother's like pads on, and the helmet's like all wobbly on his head. And, and that's David here in the armor. It just doesn't fit. And David's like, it doesn't fit. I'm not used to that. I'm not comfortable there. Just give me some rocks. Just hook me up with some rocks, and I'm good to go. Okay, now let me just stop for a second, and let me ask this question. This is the question. Those guys that were lined up, the Israelites, do you think that they prayed? Because I, th- I think at least a good chunk of them did, okay? I, th- I think they prayed, and and I'm asking myself, what was their prayer? What did they pray to God? So what do you think? There's Goliath, here's them. They're praying, or a good chunk of Mar. they're praying to God. What are they asking God? Kill Goliath. You know, G- Goliath needs to die. <laughs> God, um, please kill Goliath. So David gets the five stones and he starts running towards Goliath. And I I was watching this weekend. I was in a hotel and I was watching one of these weather, cha- I mean just flipping the channels, you know, cable. And the weather channel or discovery channel was promoing something where this, have you ever seen like storm chasers? They, they chase around tornadoes and get all these cool pictures of it. Well, this one was really interesting because the, there was a group of storm chasers, but they had waited down their car and, like, buttoned down all the hatches, put plexiglass over the windows, and, like, turned it into, like, a homemade tank. Okay? And their goal was they were going to drive into a tornado. You know, and, and they're promoting this show, and I'm just like, what's wrong with these people? You know, they're from the south. Uh, and they're going to drive into this tornado. And I'm thinking of like David running at Goliath. And I'm thinking that's like what it is. I mean, he's running headlong into the, the hurricane, the, to- the tornado. He's just going right at it. And, and what are you, you know, what are you doing that for? It's got to be just the weirdest feeling running at this giant. And so David's flying down the grassy slope or whatever. And, um, he's praying too. And what do you think David's praying? God, kill Goliath. So you got these guys that are standing there, and they're praying for like 40 days, God, kill Goliath. David's running down the hill with stones in his hands, and, and David's praying, and he's praying, God, kill Goliath. Same prayer. But there's something radically different, don't you think? And that's just what I went round and round with in my head. I'm like, you know, it's the same prayer. But it just seems like something is just very different about David's prayer and the prayer of those other guys. And here's what I think it is. I think it has to do with heart. I think David's heart was different than the heart of those other guys. In fact, it says later on that that when he becomes king or when he's chosen to become king, it was because of his heart, and he's actually been anointed before this, but God sees in him as, a, as a, a youngster. And I love why, you know, when Paul writes to Timothy and says, don't let people look down on you because of your age. Because the things we see aren't really the real things, you know. It's what's behind that. And God looks behind the outside things and sees David's heart. And he wants David to take Saul's place and become king because he's got heart. And so you contrast that with Saul. Saul, it's a fascinating story. He's the big guy, head and shoulders above everybody else, first king of Israel. And Samuel basically prophesies to him and says, God's going to rip this kingdom out of your hands. He's going to give it to somebody who's more fit. I mean, that would be a crazy thing if, like, some prophet showed up to you at work or at home, knocked on your door. I've got a word from the Lord for you. God is going to rip everything out of your hands and give it to somebody who's more deserving. You know, it'd be like, whoa. Uh this is Samuel's prophecy to Saul. And there's a crazy story where Saul has been commanded to go and wipe out this kind of village type of a deal. And God says, kill even the animals. And so Saul goes, they take over the village, but they don't kill the animals. They kind of hang on to that as booty. And so they, they've got the animals and Samuel shows up on the scene. He goes in to where... Saul is indoors, probably one of those tents like you see in the movies, because Hollywood always gets it right. And and he's in this fancy tent with King Saul, and Samuel says, Why did you sin? He uses that word, why did you sin? And Saul's like, I didn't sin. You know? He's like, but what and then Samuel's like, well, then how come I hear all these sheep like bleeding, you know, like the sounds they make or whatever? How come I hear that out there? So I was like, oh, that, oh, that, you know, and so it reminds me of when you're a kid. Like I had a party at my house one time uh, when I was a senior and too many people came over because like right after a football game, my parents were out of town for a weekend. And so all of a sudden there's like 250 people in my house and in my courtyard and eventually the, the neighbors called the police and you know, had a banister that got broken and all this other stuff. Well, my dad gets home and hears about it and, and you want, want to know what I said to him? I said to my dad, I said, oh, oh, dad, I called the police. <laughs> they found out you guys were gone, and they were like pouring in the house, and I couldn't get them to leave, and the doors weren't locked, and I freaked out. And so I went upstairs, and I called the police, dad, you know. um, So so no, it wasn't that I sinned. It was, you know, it was, I, I, I meant good by what happened, you know. And Saul's doing that here. He's like, oh, the sheep, oh, the sheep, that's right, that's right. You know, Samuel, we, we brought those sheep because we were going to sacrifice them to God. You see, it's not a sin. We, we were going we to one-up God and do something good with it. And he's like trying to turn it. I mean, you know how it goes? You get caught and it's just like, how do I like turn a bad situation into a good one? You know, and, and so Saul's like, I called the cops, Samuel. I didn't sin. And Samuel's just like, no, nah, it doesn't cut it. You were given specific commands. You didn't follow them. Your heart's in the wrong place. The kingdom's going to be ripped out of your hands. Okay? So Samuel, the prophet, starts to leave. Saul grabs at his cloak. It rips. And you want to know what Saul says to Samuel? And this has amazed me. Ever since seminary, I read this passage, just reflected on it, did a, wrote a whole paper on it. And it's just amazing to me what Saul says to Samuel. He says, hey, Samuel, Samuel, hold up. <laughs> okay, when we walk out of the tent, we got to walk out arm in arm and like, you know, we got to, we got to, we got to go like do something together, like fun to God or whatever, you know, because the people need to see that everything's okay. Everything's tight. Nothing's wrong. I've got to save face, Samuel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're t- telling me that, you know, God's going to rip the kingdom out of my head, whatever. But I got to, when we walk out of this tent, I got to look good. And he's afraid of the people, or he's afraid of, of image. And he's, he's wrestling with, how do I salvage this with my own hands and look, look good? And the confession I've got this morning is, you know, there's a lot of Saul in me. And I don't know about you guys, but sometimes the spiritual, I just take it and set it right on that shelf. And I start obsessing with, but God, somehow you got to make me look good here. God, how do I salvage this? And what are the people going to think? And, and somehow what's that end around groove, you know? Because at the end of the day, it, it's just got to go good here on the, this side of the spectrum, not even the spiritual, but just like with the people and the politics and, and, and God, you know. So I, whatever you got to say to me, as long as we go out arm in arm and, and you help me look good and I don't lose face. You ever been there? And Saul's heart, it's not in the right spot. And so I think the answer here is heart. It's not content of prayer. It's not volume of your prayers. It's not the length of your prayers. I really think if we're going to get to the, the the core of what prayer is, it's something that jumps out of our heart. And it colors it. And God Heard the prayers of these Israelites, but I think he's standing back and he's looking at them and going, "Man, what is wrong with you guys? If you would just step out in faith, yeah, I'd be there." And then when David starts running down that field, there's a ride at California Adventure down by Disneyland, you know, and it's it's called Soaring Over California or something like that. You sit these little chairs, and everything's on the screen. You kind of move in your chair, but you feel like you're flying. And they spray these little smells at you. So you're like going through the orange like orchards and there's this orange smell that's like spraying at you. And it's really cool. Like you're soaring. And I I kind of have this picture of God looking at the Israelites going, what's wrong with you guys? You're just missing it. And there goes David running out and he just sweeps behind them like soaring over California. And God is happy. And he's going to answer David's prayer. He's excited. He's excited. And he's going to be right there with David, answering David's prayer. And so it's about the heart. So here's the next thing. If it's about the heart, then what do we do? How do we have the right heart so that we can pray and act and move in such a way that brings joy to God and, and that God can come alongside and affirm those prayers? And the first thing i just say is this, and I think they build on each other. I think the first thing is... We have to renew a right spirit within us. And we do that by praying for it. We need to ask God. The first part of prayer is, God, renew renew a right spirit within me. Hit the refresh button. Give me a start over. Take the Etch-A-Sketch and like clear the slate and, and, and renew a right spirit within me. You remember that song? There's like a worship song with it. And it's taken from words that David wrote in the Psalms. Renew a right spirit within me. I think that's amazing because Jesus kind of starts his the the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, and we're going to look at that later. He kind of starts it with some phrases that are just like that: renew the right spirit, you know, give me the right perspective, put me in the right place. And so God is a God who creates out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing He creates, and He made us, and He breathed life into us. And when we go to Him and we pray and we say, "God," it's like tarnished and it's messy and it's dirty, and I. I don't have my heart quite in the right place, and I've got a lot of Saul in me. God renew rights, create in me something new here. Hit the refresh button, and God can just blow that right into us. And so I think we've got, to, we've got to realize that the biggest object of prayer, the first object of prayer really is to change ourselves. And Kierkegaard said, prayer doesn't change God, rather it changes us. I think the first movement of prayer is, God, create a new spirit within me. I think the second thing falls out of that, and it's faith. And faith, I've always believed, is a lot more like a muscle than a light switch. A light switch, it's either on or off. You either have it or you don't. And faith is a lot like a muscle. It grows or it shrinks based on use or disuse. If you use it, if you exercise faith, if you go out on limbs for God and God then comes along... Then you're going to be just like, wow, I get it. God wants me to run down that grassy slope and and tackle these things. And you're going to be that much more ready to respond when your gut and your conscience kind of say something to you. And have you ever realized how, like, your gut and your conscience kind of speak? We don't really listen to it that much because, I don't know, maybe it sounds weird, but they talk to you. You know, you feel it. And I think when we exercise our faith and it begins to grow, We're like, ah, and we dive at things, and it's like a muscle. And so what's interesting to me is that the guy, when Jesus asks, and he says, do you believe, and he says, yes, I believe, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And so we've got faith. It just might be really small. And so the the next thing is renew a right spirit within me. God, put me in the right place. Like clean out my heart. Let me see things correctly. And then when that's done, guess what? I've probably got a mustard seed, less than that of faith. I need more faith. So yes, I believe God, but it's so hard. Yes, I believe God, but please help my unbelief, fill me back up, pour it into me, grow it, let it be a little bit bigger so that it gets easier for me to be obedient and to act and to move when you speak to me. So I think the second thing here with the heart is faith, that we'd renew a right spirit, that we'd begin to exercise our faith. And here's the third thing, I want to spend a little bit more time with it. I think we need to start thinking about liking God. Maybe sounds confusing. I think we need to start thinking about liking God. Not loving God, but liking God. Okay. Now, I don't know if you had this experience growing up, but did you ever have a relative that you knew loved you, but you were pretty certain that they didn't like you? And those are two different things. I grew up feeling that way. Now, I think sometimes we project that onto God. God loves me. I get it. I understand. But I don't think he likes me. I don't think I'm all that valuable. I don't really feel like I was made in his image. I don't really get that whole son-daughter thing. And I feel really small. And so, yeah, God loves me because he's a loving God and it's his duty to love me. But he doesn't like me. He doesn't take pleasure in me. He doesn't delight in me. I'm not like the person he'd want to go to the movies with or call up on the phone if he doesn't have anything to do. And we project that onto God. And... Here's the thing. We also do it in reverse, By default. We love a lot of people. And we never go that extra step of actually liking them, seeing the value in them, getting excited about them, wanting to spend that lunch or that coffee or that movie, that experience with them rather than like going, oh, I don't want to spend time with person. Let me call this guy. And I think we need to start liking god there's a movie called second hand lions did you see that one it's pretty funny you get these two old geezers on the on the porch with guns chasing everybody off because they robbed a bank when they were younger and and everyone's certain that they have the money but no one can find the money you know and so there's a lot of people that come around they just sit in their rocking chairs and and pretty soon the long lost relatives show up and the long lost relatives show up and they've got the kids and the parents are like making the kids look perfect and they're coaching them and all this and their whole point in being there is what? It's the money. So they've got this agenda. And they're after the money. And it's not authentic. They don't really like those two people. They're just there to get something. And I think we treat God that way. We're like the long-lost relative that shows up. And we're like, oh, hey, God. But he's got something he can do here. You know? You know, And so then we start throwing out our prayers. You know, And we're expecting God to kind of deliver because he's kin. You know, But all we're doing is manipulating them and using them. And we've got an agenda, and we're like the long-lost relative. And, and it's kind of a funky thing. And I think another way of looking at it is, is this whole idea of, uh, of experience. That we don't like God because we're not impressed with God. We don't like God. We're not enamored with Him. We don't think about Him all the time because we're really not that impressed with God. And we're not impressed with them because we haven't experienced some things, maybe. It's interesting, like, when people brag on doctors. I mean, it's funny how when someone goes to a doctor and they have this great experience, you just, like, have to brag on that doctor. It's like a miracle worker. This guy's amazing, you know. You got, like, foot fungus. Well, you should go to this cardiologist because he's amazing. Well, he's a cardiologist. It doesn't matter. He's a miracle worker, you know, and people, like, become the salespeople for these doctors that have helped them. And when someone brags on a doctor to you, what's your usual response? I don't know, you just ignore it. Yeah, 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 what are you going to say next? Because we don't care about someone else's experience with their doctor. We just don't. And so we're not impressed because we haven't had that experience. We were at a conference this week and there was a guy there that had never heard Rick Warren speak. And Rick Warren, evidently the purpose-driven life I heard this weekend, is now the second all-time greatest selling book in the history of the world behind the Bible, and it's the second most translated book in the history of the world behind the Bible, I, I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's pretty crazy, you know, and, and Rick Warren was speaking, he gave this great talk, but one of the guys there had never heard Rick Warren, and before Rick Warren gets up to speak, he's like, ah, I don't really like him, ah, I've never really liked him, you know, um, but yeah, I guess I've never really heard him, and after the talk, this same guy was like, wow, I really like that guy. He's pretty down to earth and he's, you know, he's okay. And, and I think we do that with God. We, we get these kind of paradigms on God and we've never really experienced him. We've never really seen that, wow, he really is okay. Or yeah, he really can meet us, you know, and do something and he wants to and he's exciting and, and we just kind of put him on the shelf because he's boring, maybe. And we haven't really experienced it. It's kind of a powerful principle because in the book of Hebrews is this crazy, scary passage where the writer to uh, to the Hebrews is saying like, hey, if you've tasted of the Holy Spirit, of the goodness of the Holy Spirit, and then you walk away, you're done for. There's really no going back. And I, I really think what he's saying is if you've tasted of God and you you get it, you've experienced it, it's firsthand experience, and, and you understand, man, this is amazing. There's nothing better than this. And then you still walk away, man, there's really no hope for you. Something's wrong with you. And I think Jesus picks up on this. He's, he's with this woman at this well, and she's there getting water, and he's kind of like talking to her in a confusing way. He says, hey, I got, I got something to say to you. If you drink of me, the water I can give you, you'll never thirst again. It will satisfy. But if you you don't, you're just going to keep coming back to that well every day to get more water because you're going to keep thirsting, keep thirsting. It's never going to fully take care of that and satisfy it. And I think Jesus is hitting at the same thing. If you would come to me and experience what I've got to give here, this water, man, you're done. You don't need anything else. You know it. I like God. I love God. I need God. I want God. God, 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 God. I'm a Jesus freak. And there's nothing else I want. What else would I do? And so Jesus, I think, also shows us what this looks like. He he likes God. And I, I had a mentor once tell me that prayer is a lot like this. It's not always about talking to God or hearing from God. A lot of times it's just about knowing that God's there. So he gave me this example. He says, you know, when I'm typing down on my computer and my wife's in the house, but she's in the other room, he goes, I still know she's there. And I'm not lonely. Like I'm relationally fulfilled, but she's not even in the room with me. I'm just aware of her presence. And I think that, Prayer has a a component to it that's so rich and deep like that. And so Jesus goes up on the hillsides and mountaintops at night, and he'll spend a whole night in prayer with God. I don't think he's talking the whole time. He might not even be listening the whole time. But he's up there because he likes God. He wants God. He needs to be with God. There's no other place, there's no other thing that he'd rather be doing at that moment other than just being with God. And so Jesus shows us that solitude is this huge part of that prayer dynamic. And it comes out of a heart that just wants God, is enamored with God. And there's a great book, if you want to pick it up, called Wasting Time with God. And it was a seminary professor that someone gave him like a free, like 40 days in the wilderness in this cabin, like solitude type experience. And they bring you food and some like, I think monk or something comes and meets with you every day. And it's like, you know, just gives you someone to kind of, talk to you about what you're learning or something like that. And he's like, ah, it's like two grand. Someone gave it to me. Why don't I go? So he goes and spends 40 days alone with God in this cabin in solitude. And it changed his whole life. And he comes back to the seminary I was at and he's like, man, I've just been teaching stuff for all these years and I've completely missed it. And he goes... It's all about wasting time with God. So he writes this book, Wasting Time with God. It's about finding the the little spare change moments in your life, the five minutes, ten minutes, the hour, the all night, because no one's calling you on your cell phone or texting you in the middle of the night. And you use those times that are afforded to you to go be with God, to waste time with God, because there's no one that you like better. There's nothing that you like better. This is Jesus, our model. That if we would just experience God, if we'd be impressed with God, We begin to like God and there'd be no desire that would be stronger. And so I think our prayers are often too much like a a dope addict going to his dealer and he's just wanting a quick fix and he's desperate and he just begs and pleads for that band-aid that'll just get him through to the next day. And so I think we do that with God. We're trying to control our lives so much and we make such a failure of it so often Then we go running back to God, just get me out of this mess, but then tomorrow we're going to just jump right into another mess because we've got one thing still off, and we think life is about ourselves. I realized this week that we were listening to all these great speakers at this conference and that every speaker kind of has this core of what they teach. Like Everything they say always kind of comes back to this main central theme of their life. And I realized, you know, I think I've got one of those. I think every message I ever spoken kind of has a root that comes back to this one central theme. That's kind of my thing, I guess. And it was interesting just to have it clarify my mind like that. And the one thing is this, is that I, I, I believe with everything I've got that it is a God-centered universe. And that we worship a God-centered God. And that life is about having god in the middle, and that means that we can't be in the middle, and that it's not a self-centered or an ego-centered life that I live. It's got to be a God-centered. And so Jesus kind of says it, and I always bring this verse up because it's it just encapsulates it. And Jesus says if you lose your life, you'll find it. But if you go hunting for your life, you'll lose it. And so what I think Jesus shows us is when we are enamored with God, when we're impressed with God, when we like God, when we seek Him out, when we have that heart, it ends up being God at the center. That's our purpose. And our prayer isn't now going to God like the the drug addict is saying, my purpose is this mess over here. God, slay this giant. You know, it's different. And so let me just talk a little bit about this whole God-centered thing. Because I think it's huge that we understand that. And I say it that way for a reason. That we have a God-centered God. Because it sounds kind of selfish, doesn't it? Let me just read the end of Daniel's prayer. Daniel has a prayer in the book of Daniel. And what's fun about it is he like admits sin that he didn't even do. So the Israelites get carted off into captivity punishment for all these sins. But he was a boy when he got carted off. He didn't even share in that, but he identifies with it and says, you know what? Um, we sinned against you. We people that are messy sinned against you, God. And so Daniel, the crazy little guy that he is, big guy, I don't know, I've never seen him. Um, he really gets it, and this is what he says uh, in chapter 9, beginning in verse 17. So Daniel prays this at the end of his prayer. Now, our God, hear the prayers and prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel gets it, and he's like, man, it's it's all about God here. And Jesus teaches us how to pray, and Jesus begins the prayer. That it's kind of like supposed to tell us the, the whole mentality of prayer. And he begins it this way in chapter 6 of Matthew, and these are familiar words, but he says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name magnified glorified enlarged big huge wonderful magnificent that your name would be great hallowed be your name and then coming off of that that your kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven that's renewing that that, that, the frame of mind right there remember i said that jesus kind of Shows us how to pray that our, our, we be renewed in our spirit and our perspective on it. See, it revolves around God. It doesn't revolve around me. And so we go to God and we confess that and say, God, you deserve to be set apart. You deserve to be at the center. And it revolves around you and your will and not just my agenda for my life. And I get that. And I think we stumble at that and get mad at God because we're like, man, that's selfish of God. And the reason we think that's selfish is because when somebody is self-centered, we live in a limited kind of like good society where for me to be selfish means I'm taken away from somebody else. When we meet a selfish person, it's like a black hole. Man, that guy only thinks of himself. And the closer I get, he's going to suck stuff out of me and suck it into him because that's all he wants. And anything ever going to come back, my happiness will be diminished by being in a relationship with this selfish person how bad is that you dirty scumbag you know that you would just have that much self-centeredness that you would suck from everyone else and make it all about you and so when i say that god is god-centered we kind of go oh that's not good but here's the difference the sun is at the center of our our solar system and what would it be like if the sun was like gee i don't want anyone to think i'm like about me so let me take myself out of this, and maybe that would be better for everybody else. And it doesn't work that way. And so God is, His integrity won't even allow it, because if we took something that wasn't the most supreme thing and put it in the center, that's, that's idolatry. And God can't, can't agree with that. Well, can't have that. And, Not only that, but when you take something that is the most supreme thing and take it out of the center, it's called profaning it. Treating something valuable as if it's common. And so in the Ten Commandments, right off the bat, what does it say? You will not use my name in vain. This is so dangerous that right off the bat, I'm going to command you this. Don't ever talk about me in a casual way. Lest you begin to think then I'm not that important, not that impressive, not that necessary. You've got to understand that because what's best for you and everything else in this world is for me to stay at the center. And so you've got to talk about me like that, and you can't talk about me as if I'm common or ordinary. So do not take my name in vain. Do not profane the name of the Lord. I always thought it was interesting when I was a kid. Uh, you get on an airplane, you know how that goes? I guess they're called flight attendants now. I, I still slip and call them steward and stewardesses. But the flight attendants talk about the rules and if this plane becomes a boat, you know, and all this other stuff. And you know, if, if the little orange cup comes down out of the ceiling, da 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 da. And if you've got a young child with you, what are you supposed to do? You put your own mask on first, and then you help the other little kid. And I always thought, well, that just doesn't seem right. You know, whatever happened to like women and children first and you help, you help the like the kid first, you know, because that kid's dependent on you. You got to do it. And, and it, you know, it dawned on me hopefully more than a couple years ago um, <laughs> that you're doing the best thing for that kid by keeping yourself at the center. Because if you pass out in the middle of trying to put their mask on, are you doing them any good? But if they're dependent on you and you ensure your own well-being so that you can now help them, it does a world of good. And so that's the difference between God being God-centered and us when we're self-centered. When we're self-centered, we suck in light. We're a black hole. When God is God-centered, he's a sun and he radiates. When God puts himself at the center, it goes best for us. Instead of our happiness getting sucked out of our life, We are in a position now to be filled with joy and peace and love and all the virtues that we desire and to be able to look at life and go, oh, life is grand and have that carpe diem. I just want to embrace it even if I've got trials because I'm in that right relationship and God is shining on me. God loves me. God likes me and I'm valuable and I'm known and he's here and I'm not alone. And so it's not about us. It's less us and more God and we had this little squish ball at work and Kim told me this week that she threw it away and I was like, no, I needed that. But it was disgusting because like 5,000 people had touched it and it was just really disgusting. But if you squeeze the bottom half of it, what happens? It all squeezes up to the top half and that kind of expands. And if you squeeze the top half, it all kind of shoots down the bottom. And I think David's prayer was a bottom half squeeze. God, man, it's not about me right now. I don't have this one and I'm doing this because your name is being profane and because you said that you were with us and, and he's squeezing like mad and saying, God, it's about you. Act and help. And, you know, if we do, you know, the word picture is like milk. If we try to milk God, but I don't know if that really sits well. Um, but if we squeeze the top half and, and that's what we do a lot of times when we go to prayers, we're like, we're like trying to milk the top and then like, Squeeze out the bottom so that my territory would enlarge and my life would expand and it's all about me and it's just me. And that's the problem I had with the prayer of Jabez. Um, it might have, you know, you might have taken it in the right way. But that, that book, when it came out to me, it was positioned for, here's this wonderful way that you can squeeze God and, and enlarge your territory and make it all about you. And now God just becomes, again, that other thing that we're manipulating, we've got an agenda with. And so the wonderful picture of this is John the Baptist. And, and John the Baptist was a, man, a strong guy. He'd run right over the top of you. You know, bullheaded guy, strong guy. Jesus shows, shows up on the scene. What does he say? I must become less. He must become more. My whole purpose of being this prophet or this messenger was to to magnify God and to do God's will and to shine a spotlight on what God was doing to talk about what was going to happen with Christ coming. And now that Christ is here, um, i got to step back because it was never about me. It was always about Christ. It was always about what God was doing. It was always about that being big. And so John the Baptist sees Christ and goes, oops, okay, i gotta, I got to become less and then more light on Jesus, more on the spotlight. He's got to become more. And so this is kind of becoming just the core of my life, that we've got to get this idea in our American mindset that life does not revolve around us. And that when we renew that right spirit, we'll we'll be able to do some foolish things like David did and run headlong at the Goliath, and actually be able to see God work and move. And so here's a new way. I I saw two weeks ago, I saw a septic truck and it became my new like kind of mantra for this whole view. But this is what it said on the septic truck. A straight flush beats a full house. And we got a lot of, I don't know, there's a lot of stuff up in our lives that we're hanging on to. And I think we just, it's just, we got to flush it out. It's the stuff that's keeping us from being able to have God really come into our lives and have it all. And so am. Anyway, a straight flush beats a full house. This is the, the unique thing, because if we understand this kind of prayer, It's not about just stuff happening. So when we were just getting ready to launch with these pre-launch services, we met at the Ameritale Inn right up there, and it was a little small group, and so we could afford the dollar per Play-Doh pack at the dollar store, right? So everyone came in, there was like a little Play-Doh on their seats, and we said, take it out in like fashion, like a little stick figure, Play-Doh figure guy, right? So everyone does that, and we read the Lord's Prayer, and we're like, what's going on in the Lord's Prayer? When we when we are like thinking of prayer, this little like clay figure is like trying to like manipulate those circumstances. I, I was in a mall and they've got this new like gaming system that that's all like remote. And so you've got this lady had this thing in her hand and she's like bowling, but there's no cord or no nothing. You know, it's like whoa, um, why is she playing bowling instead of something more fun? And but we we do that we like. We think we can grab this little stick thing and put a sleeve on and it's like now I've got these divine gloves to manipulate my life through prayer and we're like circumstances need to be molded and shaped and changed and, and I like talked about that and I said let's read the Lord's Prayer. I said what do you think God's wanting to do? He's just looking at the clay. It's the only thing that matters to him. And God's like man, I wish you guys would get it. It's not, it's not like Saul. It's like David and and I would love to get in there and shape you and mold you and make you and whatever. And just, I I love you. And so I think when we pray right, we're going to experience growing pains. Because it has to do with us being shaped and like all that stuff. So we're going to, you know, growing pains are what we got to look for in our life. You guys remember that show, Growing Pains? I was in junior high, there was a show, Growing Pains, Kirk Cameron. And uh, all the girls that I thought were cute in my youth youth group uh, were really in love with Kirk Cameron. And I I really was bitter. (laughs) I mean, I couldn't compete. I'd barely even hit puberty yet, and I was just like, there's no competing. And so now Kirk Cameron, uh, you'll see him a lot on TBN, and I think that's a good punishment. Um, Yeah. But anyways, um, if you'd like to cut out a picture of Kirk Cameron, you can put them on your mirror uh, or write growing pains on your mirror. One of the best things Tam and I ever did was we brought a little black dry erase marker and put it in our bathroom. And we just write stuff all over our mirror. So people come into our house and they'll go in our bathroom and be like, man, these these white swans are weird. (laughs) you know. There's just stuff written all over our mirror. I think you just got to get a dry erase marker and go in there and just write growing pains and just circle it. And then just say, okay, God, I'm ready. Get your hands on me. Make me the kind of person I need to be so that I can enjoy what's going on with you and so that I'm not preoccupied with this world and the politics and this stuff and I'm not a Saul. Because we struggle with that. I struggle with that. And we don't want to be that. So I think we ride on the board and we just start praying, God, let us see some growing pains maybe. I've heard it said that uh, that... It's great to be a grandparent because you don't have to do any of the discipline. You just give people stuff, right? Um, so like I've, grandparents usually say, "Ah, oh, it's not, not work. It's all fun because I just give it, you know. And what I say is many a good child has been ruined because you can't spank grandma. Um, and so many a good child is ruined because you can't spank grandma. And, and God is our father. He's not our grandfather. Um, That's Santa Claus. (laughs) Um, But God is our Father. And He doesn't just want to give us all the good stuff and not have to do any of the hard stuff. He's desirous of doing the hard stuff because He loves us. And we must become less. And He must become more. And we somehow have to get shaped so that our hearts pray or think or feel or experience or want or desire what they ought to, because it begins there. So for the prayer, um, I just want to read this. Tamara reads a Puritan prayer book, and she gives it to people that she cares about, so maybe you've gotten one. And uh, I like this little chunk, and so I'm just going to read it. And this is what it says. Cast me not under the feet of pride, injustice, riches, worldly greatness, selfish, selfish oppression of men. Rather, help me to wait patiently, silently upon thee, not to be enraged or speak unadvisedly. And let thy mercy follow me while I live, and give me aid to resign myself to thy will. Take my heart and hold it in thy hand. Write upon it reverence to thyself with an inscription that time and eternity cannot erase what I'd like you guys to do is maybe just stand where you're at. I want to read that last part together as a congregation. And so let's just read this in unison. Take my heart and hold it in thy hand. Write upon it reverence to thyself with an inscription that time and eternity cannot erase. Father God, we do pray that you would just... Stamp yourself into us. And we would desire nothing more than to just be able to love you and to love you in the center of our lives. In Christ's name.